Chapter 5 of The Social History of Smoking by George L. Apperson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Social History of Smoking by George L. Apperson. Chapter 5 Smoking in the Restoration Period. The Indian weed withered quite, green at noon, cut down at night, shows thy decay, all flesh is hay, thus think, then drink tobacco. George Wither, 1588-1667 The year 1660 that restored Charles II to this throne restored a gaiety and brightness, not to say frivolity of tone, that had long been absent from English life. The following song in praise of tobacco, taken from a collection which was printed in 1660, is touched with the spirit of the time, though it is really founded on, and to no small extent taken from, some verses in praise of tobacco written by Samuel Rowlands in his Knave of Clubs, 1611. To feed on flesh is gluttony, it maketh men fat like swine, but is not he a frugal man, that on a leaf can dine? He needs no linen for to foul his fingers' ends to wipe, that has his kitchen in a box, and roast meat in a pipe. The cause wherefrom few rich men's sons prove disputants in schools, is that their fathers fed on flesh, and they begat fat fools. This fulsome feeding clogs the brain, and doth the stomach choke, but he's a brave spark that can dine with one light dish of smoke. There is nothing to show that King Charles smoked, nor what his personal attitude towards tobacco may have been. His Majesty was pleased, however, in a letter to Cambridge University, officially to condemn smoking by parsons, as at the same time he condemned the practice of wig-wearing and of sermon-reading by the clergy. But the royal frown was without effect. Wigs soon covered nearly every clerical head from the bench of bishops downwards, and it is very doubtful indeed whether a single parson put his pipe out. Clouds were blown under archiepiscopal roofs. At Lambert Palace, one Sunday in February 1672, John Eachard, the author of the famous book or tract on the contempt of the clergy, 1670, which Macaulay turned to such account, dined with Archbishop Sheldon. He sat at the lower end of the table between the archbishop's two chaplains, and when dinner was finished, Sheldon, we are told, retired to his withdrawing-room, while Eachard went with the chaplains and another convived to their lodgings to drink and smoke. If the restored king did not himself smoke, tobacco was far from unknown at the palace of Whitehall. We get a curious glimpse of one aspect of life there in the picture which Lilly, the notorious astrologer, paints in his story of his arrest in January 1661. He was taken to Whitehall at night, and kept in a large room with some sixty other prisoners till daylight, when he was transferred to the guard-room, which, he says, I thought to be hell. Some therein were sleeping, others swearing, others smoking tobacco. In the chimney of the room, I believe, there was two bushels of broken tobacco-pipes, almost half one load of ashes. What would the king's grandfather, the author of the Counterblast, have said? Could he have imagined such a spectacle within a palace walls? General Monk, to whom Charles II owed so much, is said to have indulged in the unpleasant habit of chewing tobacco, and to have been imitated by others, but the practice can never have been common. Tobacco was still the symbol of good fellowship. 
Winstanley, who was an enemy of what he called this heathenish weed, and who thought the folly of smoking might never have spread so much if stringent means of prevention had been exercised, yet had to declare in 1660 that tobacco itself is by few taken now as medicinal, it has grown a good fellow, and fallen from a physician to a compliment. He's no good fellow that's without burnt pipes, tobacco, and his tinder-box. At the time of the Restoration, tobacco boxes which were considered suitable to the occasion were made in larger numbers. The outside of the lid bore a portrait of the royal martyr. Within the lid was a picture of the restored king, His Majesty King Charles II, while on the inside of the bottom of the box was a representation of Oliver Cromwell leaning against a post, a gallows tree tied over his head, and about his neck a halter tied to the tree, while beside him was pictured the devil wide-mouthed. Another form of memorial tobacco box is described in an advertisement in the London Gazette of September 15, 1687. This was a silver box which had either been taken out of the Bull's Head Tavern Cheapside or left in the Hackney Coach. It was engraved on the lid with a coat of arms, etc., and a medal of Charles I fastened to the inside of the lid, and engraved on the inside to Jacob Smith it doth belong at the Black Lion in High Holborn, date August 1671. Smokers of the period were often curious in tobacco boxes. Mr. Richard Stapley, gentleman of Twynham, Sussex, whose diary is full of curious information, was presented in 1691 by his friend Mr. John Hill with a tobacco box made of tortoise. Seven years earlier, Stapley had sold to Hill his silver tobacco box for ten shilling in cash. The rest of the value of the box, he noted, I freely forgave him for writing at our first commission for me, and for copying of answers and ye like in our law concerns. So it I reckoned I have as good as thirty shilling for my box, five shilling he gave me, and five shilling more he promised to pay me, and I had his steel box with the bargain, and full of smoke. Apparently Mr. Hill's secretarial labors were valued at twenty shillings. The same Sussex squire bought a pound of tobacco in December 1685 for twenty pence, which seems decidedly cheap, and in the following year a five-pound box for seven shillings sixpence, which was cheaper still. A Sussex rector, the Reverend Giles Moore of Horsted Canes, in 1656 and again in 1662, paid one shilling for two ounces of tobacco, i.e. at the rate of eight shillings per pound. Presumably the rector bought the more expensive Spanish tobacco, and the squire the cheaper Virginian. At the annual parish feast held at St. Bride's, Fleet Street, London, on May 24, 1666, the expenses included three pence for tobacco for twenty or more adults. This, too, was doubtless Virginian or colonial tobacco. The North Elmham Church accounts, Norfolk, for 1673, showed that uh, 12 shillings, 4 pence, was paid for, quote, butter, cheese, bread, cakes, beer and tobacco, and tobacco pipes at the going of the rounds of the town, end of quote. On the occasion of a similar perambulation of the parish boundaries in 1714-15, to 15, the church wardens paid for beer, pipes, and tobacco, cakes, and wine. The account books of the church and parish of St. Stephen and Norwich for 1696-97 showed two shilling as the price of a pound of tobacco. These entries, and many others of similar import, show that at feasts and at social and convivial gatherings of all kind, tobacco maintained its ascendancy. Pipes and tobacco were included in the usual provisions for city feasts, mayoral and other, and smoking was made a particular feature of the Lord Mayor's show of 1672. 
A contemporary pamphleteer says that in the show of that year were two extreme great giants, each of them at least fifteen foot high, that do sit and are drawn by horses in two several chariots, moving, talking, and taking tobacco as they ride along, to the great admiration and delight of all the spectators. Among the guests at a wedding in London in 1683 were the Lord Mayor, Sheriff and Alderman of the city, the Lord Chief Justice, the afterwards notorious Jeffreys, and other bigwigs. Evelyn records with grave disapproval that, quote, these great men spent the rest of the afternoon till eleven at night in drinking healths, taking tobacco, and talking much beneath the gravity of judges who had but a day or two before condemned Mr. Algernon Sidney, end of quote. Although smoking was general among parsons, yet attacks on tobacco were occasionally heard from pulpits. A Lancashire preacher named Thomas Jolly, who was one of the ministers ejected from church livings by the Act of Uniformity of 1662, has left a manuscript diary relating to his religious work. In it, under date 1687, he mentions that he had spoken against the inordinate affection to and the immoderate use of tobacco, which did cause much trouble in some of my hearers, and some reformation did follow. He then goes on to record two remarkable examples of such reformation, examples, he says, which did stir me up in that case more than ordinary, the one I had from my reverend brother Mr. Robert Whittaker, concerning a professor, i.e. a person who professed to have been converted, who could not follow his calling without his pipe in his mouth, but that text Isaiah 55, 2, coming into his mind, he laid aside his taking of tobacco. The other instance was of a profane person living nigh Haslingdon, who was but poor, and took up his time in the trade of smoking, and also spent what should relieve his poor family. This man dreamed that he was taking tobacco, and that the devil stood by him, filling one pipe upon another for him. In the morning he fell to his old course notwithstanding, thinking it was but a dream, but when he came to take his pipe, he had such an apprehension that the devil did indeed stand by him, and do the office as he dreamed, that he was struck speechless for a time, and when he came to himself, he threw his tobacco at the fire, at his pipes at the walls, resolving never to meddle more with it, so much money as was formerly wasted by the week, in to serving his family afterward weekly. Among the many medicinal virtues attributed to tobacco was its supposed value as a preservative from contagion at times of plague. Hearn, the antiquary, writing early in 1721, said that he had been told that in the Great Plague of London in 1665 none of those who kept tobacconists' shops suffered from it, and this belief no doubt enhanced the medical reputation of the weed. I have also seen it stated that during the cholera epidemics of 1831, 1849, and 1866 not one London tobacconist died from that disease, but good authority for the statement seems to be lacking. Hutton, in his history of Derby, says that when that town was visited by the plague in 1665, that at the Headless Cross the market people, having their mouths primed with tobacco as a preservative, brought their provisions. It was observed that this cruel affliction never attempted the premises of a tobacconist, a tanner, or a shoemaker. Whatever ground there may have been for the belief in the prophylactic effect of smoking, there can be no doubt that in the 17th century it was firmly held. Howell, in one of his familiar letters dated January 1st, 1646, says that the smoke of tobacco is one of the wholesomest scents that is against all contagious airs, for it overmasters all other smells, as King James, they say, found true, when being once a-hunting a shower of rain drave him to a pig's tie for shelter, where he caused a pipeful to be taken of purpose. 
But here Mr. Howell is certainly drawing the longbow. One cannot imagine the author of the counterblast countenancing the use of tobacco under any circumstances. At the time of the Great Plague, all kinds of nostrums were sold and recommended as preservatives or as cures. Most of these perished with the occasion that called them forth. But the names of some have been preserved in a rare quarto tract which was published in the plague year 1665, entitled A Brief Treatise of the Nature, Causes, Signs, Preservation from, and Cure of the Pestilence, collected by W. Kemp, Master of Arts. In the list of devices for purifying infected air, it is stated that the American silverweed, or tobacco, is very excellent for this purpose, and an excellent defense against bad air, being smoked in a pipe either by itself or with nutmegs shred, and raw seeds mixed with it, especially if it be nosed, which I suppose means if the smoke be exhaled through the nose, for it cleanseth the air, and choketh, suppresseth, and dispertheth any venomous vapor. Mr. Kemp warms to his subject and proceeds with a whole-hearted panegyric that must be quoted in full. It hath singular and contrary effects. It is good to warm one being cold, and will cool one being hot. All ages, all sexes, all constitutions, young and old, men and women, the sanguine, the choleric, the melancholy, the phlegmatic, take it without any manifest inconvenience. It quencheth thirst, and yet will make one more able and fit to drink. It abates hunger, and yet will get one a good stomach. It is agreeable with mirth or sadness, with feasting and with fasting. It will make one rest that wants sleep, and will keep one waking that is drowsy. It hath an offensive smell to some, and is more desirable than any perfume to others. That it is a most excellent preservative, both experience and reason do teach. It corrects the air by fumigation, and it avoids corrupt humours by salivation. For when one takes it either by chewing it in the leaf or smoking it in the pipe, the humours are drawn and brought from all parts of the body to the stomach, and from thence rising up to the mouth of the tobacconist, as to the helm of a sublimatory, are voided and spitten out. When plague was abroad, even children were compelled to smoke. At the time of the dreadful visitation of 1665, all the boys at Eton were obliged to smoke in school every morning. One of these juvenile smokers, a certain Tom Rogers, years afterwards declared to Hearn, the Oxford antiquary, that he never was whipped so much in his life as he was one morning for not smoking. Times have changed at Eton since this anti-tobacconist martyr received his whipping. It is sometimes stated that at this time smoking was generally practiced in schools, and that at a stated hour each morning lessons were laid aside, and masters and scholars alike produced their pipes and proceeded to smoke tobacco. But I know of no authority for this wider statement. It seems to have grown out of Hearn's record of the practice at Eton. The belief of the prophylactic power of tobacco was, however, very generally held. When Mr. Samuel Pepys, on June 7, 1665, for the first time saw several houses marked with the ominous red cross, and the words, Lord have mercy upon us, chalked upon the doors, he felt so ill at ease that he was obliged to buy some rolled tobacco to smell and chew. There's nothing to show that Pepys even smoked, which, considering his proficiency in the arts of good fellowship, is perhaps a little surprising. Defoe, in his fictitious but graphic journal of the plague year in London, says that the sexton of one of the London parishes, who personally handled a large number of the victims, never had the distemper at all, but lived about twenty years after it, and was sexton of the parish to the time of his death. 
This man, according to Defoe, never used any preservative against the infection other than holding garlic and rue in his mouth and smoking tobacco. When excavations were in progress early in 1901, preparatory to the construction of Kingsway and Aldwych, they included the removal of bodies from the burying grounds of St. Clement Danes and St. Mary Strand. And among the bones were found a couple of the curious tobacco pipes called plague pipes, because they are supposed to have been used as a protection against infection by those whose office it was to bury the dead. These pipes have been dug up from time to time in numbers so large that one antiquary, Mr. H. Sire Cumming, has ventured to infer that almost every person who ventured from home invoked the protection of tobacco. These seventeenth-century pipes were largely made in Holland of pipe clay imported from England, to the disgust and loss of English pipe-makers. In 1663 the Company of Tobacco Pipe-Makers petitioned Parliament to forbid the export of tobacco pipe clay, since by the manufacture of pipes in Holland their trade is much damaged. Further, they asked for the confirmation of their charter of government, so as to empower them to regulate abuses, as many persons engage in the trade without license. The company's request was granted, but in the next year they again found it necessary to come to Parliament, showing the great improvement in their trade since their incorporation, 17 James I, and their threatened ruin because cooks, bakers, and alehouse keepers and others make pipes, but so unskillfully that they are brought into disesteem. They request to be comprehended in the statute of laborers of five Elizabeth, so that none may follow the trade who have not been apprentices seven years. Tobacco pipe-making was a flourishing industry at this period, and throughout the seventeenth and following century, in most of the chief provincial towns and cities, as well as in London. Old English clays, says Mr. T. P. Cooper, are exceedingly interesting, as most of them are branded with the maker's initials. Monograms and designs were stamped or moulded upon the bowls and on the stems, but more generally upon the spur or flat heel of the pipe. Many pipes display on the heels various forms of lines, hatched and milled, which were perhaps the earliest marks of identification adopted by the pipe-makers. In a careful examination of the monograms, we are able to identify the makers of certain pipes found in quantities at various places by reference to the Freeman and Burgess rolls and parish registers. During the latter half of the 17th century, English pipes were presented by colonists in America to the Indians. They subsequently became valuable as objects of barter or part-purchase value in exchange for land. In 1677, 120 pipes and 100 Jews' harps were given for a strip of country near Timber Creek in New Jersey. William Penn, the founder of Pennsylvania, purchased a tract of land, and 300 pipes were included in the articles given in the exchange. The French traveller Sorbière, who visited London in 1663, declared that the English were naturally lazy and spent half their time in taking tobacco. They smoked after meals, he observed, and conversed for a long time. There is scarce a day passes, he wrote, but a tradesman goes to the alehouse or tavern to smoke with some of his friends, and therefore public houses are numerous here, and business goes on but slowly in the shops. But curiously enough, he makes no mention of coffee-houses. A little later they were too common and too much frequented to be overlooked. An English writer on thrift in 1676 said that it was customary for a mechanic tradesman to go to the coffee-house or ale-house in the morning to drink his morning's draught, and there he would spend twopence and consume an hour in smoking and talking, spending several hours of the evening in similar fashion. 
Country gentlemen smoked just as much as town mechanics and tradesmen. In 1688, Hervey, afterwards Earl of Bristol, wrote to Mr. Thomas Cullum of Hosted Place, desiring to be recommended by the witty smokers of Hosted. A later column, Sir John, published in 1784 a History and Antiquities of Hosted, and in describing Hosted Place, which was rebuilt about 1570, says that there was a small apartment called a smoking-room, a name, he says, it acquired probably soon after it was built, and which it retained for with good reason, as long as it stood. I should like to know on what authority Sir John Cullum could have made the assertion that the room was called a smoking-room from so early a date as the end of the sixteenth century. No mention in print of a smoking-room has been found for the purposes of the Oxford Dictionary earlier than 1689. In Shadwell's Bury Fair of that date, Lady Fantast says to her husband, Mr. Oldwit, who loves to tell of his early meetings with Ben Jonson and other literary heroes of a bygone day, while all the beau monde, as my daughter says, are with us in a drawing-room, you have none but ill-bred witless drunkards with you in your smoking-room. As Mr. Oldwit himself, in another scene of the same play, says to his friends, We'll into my smoking-room and sport about a brimmer. There was probably some excuse for his wife's remark. These country smoking-rooms were known in later days as stone-parlours, the floor being flagged for safety's sake, and the stone-parlour in many a squire's house was the scene of much conviviality, including, no doubt, abundant smoking. The arrival of coffee and the establishment of coffee-houses opened a new field for the victories of tobacco. The first house was opened in St. Michael's Alley, Cornhill, in 1652. Others soon followed, and in a short time the new beverage had captured the town, and coffee-houses had been opened in every direction. They sold many things besides coffee, and served a variety of purposes, but primarily they were temples of talk and good fellowship. The buzz of conversation, and the smoke of tobacco alike, filled the rooms which were the forerunners of the clubhouses of a much later day. End of chapter 5